Very good. Well, I hope you all had a uh, wonderful Christmas. And uh, someone shared a comic with me that showed this weekend between Christmas and New Year's. Really, just a confusing days of having eaten too many leftovers and not sure what day it is. So, in case you were unsure, it is Sunday and you are at church. Which actually provides an opportunity for an interesting question Why are you here? Maybe we could frame it this way. Are you sure you're here for the right reason? Are you here because it's comfortable? Is it just something you do on a Sunday? You get up and you get dressed and you go to church? What's the purpose of church? Why do we gather together as believers? Why do Christians gather together weekly? Why have they done this for millennia? Some might say, and not wrongly so, that it's to learn, we're to study. And that seems reasonable. I mean, there's usually a lot of teaching. You're sitting here now under teaching. We even have an hour of teaching at Canton Bible that has the word school associated with it. Jesus' final words in Matthew even include the importance of teaching, don't they? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But did you notice in that teaching what it is that is to be taught? More, maybe more specifically, what the result of that teaching is to do. We are not just trying to become smart. We are not just trying to become intelligent. We are to teach. We are to learn. We are to observe and do and live out, that is, put into practice all that Jesus has commanded. One of the more popular verses for reminding us that we're to gather together regularly is from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Teaching is again there in that passage. It's there with the words, stimulate one another. We stimulate one another both by teaching and by exhortation as well as by example. And it happens when we are gathered together. If there was nobody else in this room, I would just be talking into a void. I would not be teaching. But what's the purpose? It's to love and good deeds. It's not just knowledge, according to the writer of Hebrews. You see, while Jesus certainly wants us believing the right things, that is important. Don't walk away here thinking you can believe whatever you want. We are confused if we think that is all it means to be a Christian. This is why James said that faith or belief without works is dead. He goes on to say in chapter 1, verse 27, pure and undefiled religion and the sight of God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. It's why the end of Matthew 25 Jesus puts in place a standard for evaluating whether or not someone believes in God, whether or not someone really worships God, whether or not someone will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember what it is? You've had some homework as we've been working through Matthew 24 and 25 to read those two chapters. 
The litmus test, the measure, the standard for whether or not they will inherit the kingdom of God is not how much they know. It's not how well they can articulate doctrine and dogma. It is whether they cared for the poor and the hungry and showed hospitality. Inheriting the kingdom of God, being part of God's eternal paradise, to be spared from the judgment of God and the fires of hell depends very much on whether or not you are fulfilling the second greatest commandment. Loving your neighbor as yourself. And I want to suggest this morning that Christians as a whole are more than a little confused on this part. It's one of the reasons that Peter writes to believers in his first epistle. And in chapter 4, you can go ahead and turn there if you would like, let you get a head start. In chapter 4 of 1 Peter, he addresses the issue of clear thinking and how clear thinking impacts how we act, how we behave as Christians. In fact, Peter's teaching answers the why of why we gather on Sunday morning, but it also answers the what of what we are to do with what we learn on Sunday morning or any time we gather together. If you have your Bibles open, you can follow along as I read from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that... In all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to open up your word this morning as we close out one year and enter into another. Pray that you would help us to clear our thinking, to help remove some of this muddled and confused and cloudy thinking that we have about what it means to be a Christian, about what it means to be a member of your body. I pray that we would renew again our desire and recognize again the importance of loving one another, of serving one another, of caring for one another. Would your word do through your spirit its work of helping to enlighten us, to bring us into understanding, to convict us, and to just instill within us a greater love for our Savior. In your name, amen. Living as a Christian, as a citizen, well, as a citizen of heaven while on earth can be a very confusing thing, especially at certain times. In Peter's letter, he was writing to Christians who were living in a society that was more or less hostile toward them. Doesn't sound all that unfamiliar. They were, more often than not, despised by their contemporaries. They were, in fact, considered strange. 
They were looked down upon. They were insulted. These Christians endured suffering and hardship of one type or another. Whether it's verbal abuse, physical abuse, suffering, deprivation of property, loss of business, loss of jobs, abject poverty, loss of friends, of acquaintances. They were suffering because they were strange. And it's easy to become confused when it is hard to be a Christian. Do you know about that? To become muddled in your thinking when being a Christian means suffering of one type or another. It's easy to be confused when the word of God seems to say one thing, but your experience seems to say another. When the Bible says to you, God cares and he loves you, and yet you experience hardship and pain and disappointment and sorrow. When the Bible says that all authority and power are in the hands of Jesus Christ, and yet there seems at times to be a lot of very impressive power in this world and powerful influence, in our experience, it has nothing to do with him whatsoever. And so it's worth coming back to a letter like this that Peter wrote, this letter to four confused Christians. And as you work through the book of 1 Peter, you learn that despite the appearance of things, as Christians, you need not be afraid, you need not be concerned. Why? Because Christ died for your sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that we might have eternal life. The reminder continually is to look forward to the life that we have, the life that is to come that we will be considered strange, that there will be suffering, there will be hardship. We need only look back just a couple chapters in our study of the Gospel of Matthew to be reminded of this, where Jesus very clearly told his disciples they will endure suffering, they will endure hardship, there will be tribulation. But the hope of eternal life is what allows us to endure these things. And what the word of God tells us through Peter is that this hope causes us to not only live hopefully, but to live differently. And it will cause us to look strange in this world. That's life. That's what it's like for now. Because of what Jesus has done, we will look different. If what Jesus has done has transformed you, you will appear odd to this world, Peter says. He notes just a few verses earlier in chapter 4, in all of this, they, that is your contemporaries, those around you, the rest of the world, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. That is, sinful living of all sorts. And here in verses 7 through 11, Peter begins to explain how the clear-minded person, the Christian, must live in this world. But there's also the reality that sometimes we need to shake off the cobwebs. Sometimes we get muddled and confused in our thinking. Our priorities get out of balance. We get lost in the cares and the concerns of this world. And so we need to stop and clarify our thinking. Notice how our text begins in verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. That sound judgment is that idea of being clear-minded. But did you notice the therefore? What came before the therefore? 
the end of all things is near. We're in Matthew 24 through 25. I couldn't get far from the end. The gospel of Jesus Christ has extraordinary power to focus and to clear the mind because the gospel is like a bright light shining into the darkness of the world, showing everything for what it really is. It strips away all that is superfluous, all that is extra, and helps us to focus our thinking. And it does this with terms like the end is near. And the gospel, and and please don't be confused by that word, it just means the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel, first of all, reveals that the end of all things is near. That was Jesus' message at the beginning of his ministry. It was the message at the end of his ministry. It's a piece of news that has marvelous power to concentrate the mind, to clarify our thinking, to sweep out the cobwebs. It has the power, if you take it seriously, to do these things. If you really believe that the end is near. Now, of course, if we're honest, it may be difficult to take this seriously. After all, Peter didn't write these words yesterday. He wrote them in the middle of the first century A.D. Here we are about to enter the 24th year of the 21st century A.D. Can we really take his words seriously anymore? I mean, it was way back then that he said, the end of all things is near. What did Peter mean? Why did he say that the end of all things is near? If 2,000, over 2,000 years later, the end hasn't come. Well, this wasn't and isn't a modern problem. It only didn't take 2,000 years to pass before people started to question the end of all things being near. It happened just a couple decades after Christ ascended back into heaven after he himself declared in various ways that the end is near. In fact, if you want, you can turn a couple of pages to Peter's second letter. Just take a right from where you are right now, and you'll get there. And if you look down at chapter 3, in verse 8, you'll see that he addresses this very problem. This letter, this second letter as a whole, is given largely to dealing with the problem of, is the end really near, and how do you live in light of it? Beginning verse 8, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that's you by the way, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. The end is, in fact, near. And it's not because Peter knows the exact day and the exact hour that the end will arrive that he says it's near. It's because Peter knows what Jesus has done, and it's because he knows who Jesus is. Look just up at verse 5 of 1 Peter 4. So if you held your place and turn back to 1 Peter 4, look at verse 5. We read that Jesus is standing in heaven, ready to judge the living and the dead. And if you understand the gospel, the news about Jesus, you understand that the end of all things really is near. And what makes it so near is its imminency. Judgment can come at any moment. Christ can return at any time. 
It is standing near in the history of events. There is nothing that stands between us and it. And so it is near. It is not near as, and Christ is not slow as some count slowness by days and by years and by millennia. He is patient. And yet he is standing near. At any moment, judgment may come. And so we need to act, we need to live, we need to behave as those who understand, who believe, who have minds that are clarified by this truth that the end is near. That's why most of the New Testament writers talk about being in the last days. The writer of Hebrews opens the epistle by saying, we are in the last days. James says that these are the last days. Paul writes to the Thessalonians about these last days. But the remarkable part of that sentence in 1 Peter 4, 7 is that small little phrase, all things. Now, take careful note here. It takes a lot of study of Greek to understand what this means. It means quite literally, all things. You see, this gospel is not a message you can possibly take lightly. Once you understand it, you either refuse to believe it or you will see that it must and does change everything. There is no thing, no person, no idea, no achievement, no problem that falls outside the scope of this news. The end of all things is near. All of our misplaced priorities, all of the things that we busy ourselves with, that we're so concerned about in this world, the end is near. The end of all these things. And so what type of people should we be? Well, Peter says, therefore. Therefore what? Not drop your hands in despair, not give up on life, not don't care about what happens, but be sober-minded, be clear-minded. Clarify your thinking. Get everything into gospel perspective. Let this light shine into your mind. Let this reality focus your attention, your mind, your energy, your efforts. Now, what would be the effect of such Clear-headed thinking. Well, it's there in verse 7. Be clear-minded and self-controlled. Be sober. Now, I take it that Peter is not just speaking literally here, though I am sure it is included. To be sober is a figure of speech for being clear-minded and self-controlled. Because the end is near, says Peter, it is no time for losing control of yourself. You must have control of your faculties. You must be sober. And that really is a strange thing to say. Because if the end is near, then what is the point of having self-control? If the end is really near, then why should I worry about being self-controlled or anything for that matter? It's not hard to imagine that if the end is near, people lose control. They begin to act on impulse. We see it in Times of disaster, economic, political, natural, or war. Rioting, looting, all sorts of lawlessness, all sorts of mindlessness and lack of self-control. But it's not like that here. Peter says that the gospel news that the end is near does not have that effect on Christians. Rather, it builds up our self-control. Now, it builds up our self-control, but for what purpose? What are we to be about with this self-controlled nature? Well, we're still in verse 7, and here's a bit of a surprise, for prayer. The very first thing this perspective and self-control brings about is prayer. 
Now you might be asking, what good is prayer doing if the end is near? Well, praying is a fundamental mark of one who is at peace with God, one who is a child of God. All you have to do is to look back in chapter 3 of 1 Peter and see the Old Testament. Quote, Peter draws upon in verse 12, where he says, For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ear attends to their prayer. Peter notes that prayer is a characteristic of the righteous, of those who trust in the Lord, who believe what he has said, who believe the end is near. But you know, and I know, that strangely prayer, which is such an easy thing to do in the face of it, at least on, on its face, you just need to find a spot where you can be reasonably quiet so you can concentrate and speak words. Prayer is speaking to God. It's not a complicated thing. It is a remarkably simple thing to do, you would have thought. But strangely, it's one of the most difficult things to get around to do, isn't it? Why? Because we are so confused. We are so muddled in our thinking. We tend to think, or at least act like, praying to God makes no difference. We tend to think that the world is not really under the control of the one to whom we pray to. We tend to think that Jesus Christ is not Lord over everything. At least we act like it. That's our confused and our muddled thinking. That confusion is effective at keeping many of us from praying, or at least praying as we ought. And what Peter is saying here is that we need our minds clarified. We need some light to shine into our minds. We need it clarified by the gospel. We need it clarified by the news that Jesus stands ready to judge the living and the dead. Clarified so that we are self-controlled, self-controlled so that we pray. You may remember a few weeks ago, Grady taught on the importance of prayer as a pillar of the church. The effect of the gospel then is that we pray. That's what people who have learned how good God has been to them do. They pray. They talk to God. They take everything to him in prayer. If you were to turn one chapter over, we went back to three, then you go forward to five. In verse seven, you read that he says, cast all of your care, all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. How do you do that? Through prayer. And when we learn that the end of all things is near, it doesn't drive us to despair. It doesn't drive us to meaninglessness because we know the one who will bring an end to all things. We talk to him. We cast our cares on him. What if we don't pray? Or what if we struggle to pray? What's the problem then? Well, all you have to do is work backwards through verse 7. First, self-control is your problem. You don't have enough discipline to pray. But how do you get self-disciplined? It's not enough just to say, be disciplined. How do you get that discipline? You, first, you clear your confused mind that seems to think that things are more powerful, more important than prayer. But how do you clear a muddled and confused mind? You hear the gospel. You read the gospel the news of Jesus Christ. You pay attention to what we have been studying in Matthew 24 and 25, the end of all things is near. Well, we've spent a great deal of time on verse seven. The rest of our passage this morning shows us the effect of this gospel news, that the end of all things is near, that it will not just produce individual private Christians. Prayer is primarily a private thing, not exclusively. We do pray corporately. We've done that this morning. 
But it does not just produce private, individualistic Christians because Christians cannot really be like that. You cannot be a Christian and be like that, no matter how type A and introverted you are. I'm speaking as one. So Peter says in verse 8, Above all, love one another deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. That's remarkable, is it not? That the news of the end of all things should have this effect on a group of people like us. That it should arouse in us a deep, deep love for each other. The gospel message is that the end of all things will come about at the hand of one who, while we were yet sinners, died for us. One whose great love for us covered our sins, offered forgiveness to all who would believe. One whose love and sacrificial death was enough to forgive all of mankind if they would only put their trust in him. And so the end of all things at his hands means that I must love. I must love in a way that does not keep account of wrongs. I must love as I have been loved. I must have a love that covers those things. We won't spend a great deal of time talking about forgiveness this morning. You can go back and refresh yourself from our study of Matthew 18, beginning of verse 21. Let me ask you this. How is this going for you? Or do you find that the wrongs that have been delved out by others toward you deprives you of the ability to love them as you should. Maybe love them at all. You see, it is the power of the gospel to change that natural reaction. It's not the person whom you have nothing against that the Bible and the gospel changes you toward. It's not the person you really like anyway, the person you'd get along with because you have so much in common I mean, that's fine. Continue with those relationships. There's nothing wrong with them. But that's not evidence the gospel has transformed you, that God is at work in your life. The evidence that the love of God has touched you is here. It's in loving those who have sinned against you. And guess what? If you spend a lot of time with people, you're going to sin against them and be sinned against. It, it works both directions. You're not the only one that's getting hurt. Because we're sinners. There's a great book Really, it's intended for marriage, but it's when sinners say, I do. It really could be just as applicable to the church body as a whole. It's when, when sinners join in fellowship with one another, they're still sinners. They're still going to sin. The difference is they've been forgiven and they can forgive others. And we're to live in a very different way where we don't hold sins against one another, where we don't withhold love because we've been sinned against And you really can't tell when gospel love like that is around because it's expressed in action. And so Peter continues with examples of what the love he talks about looks like. And he gives a specific example in verse 9. One that, again, all the introverts are cringing at. Offer hospitality toward one another without grumbling and complaining. The Bible has an extraordinary understanding of human nature, in case you haven't noticed. You have trouble with one another? Great, get closer to one another. You're afraid of being sinned against? Spend more time with others. Love, genuine love, will be expressed, we are told here, in hospitality. 
Hospitality is going to vary depending upon your circumstances, but it means sharing what is rightfully yours with others, whether your home, your food, your time, or whatever it may be with others. You share what you have. If you have a little, you share a little. If you have a lot, you share a lot. It's important to have that perspective in mind. I was reminded as I was studying this, when I was in seminary, my wife attended a class called Sim Wives. Um, it was for the wives of the seminary students, in case the name wasn't obvious enough. And, and it was to just teach them different things. It was supposed to be a place of encouragement. Um, this is one example where it was not. It, they gathered together and they invited someone in to teach about hospitality and what it should look like. And it's a classic case of knowing your audience. They brought in the wife of a former NBA basketball player who was a believer to teach about how to show hospitality. And apart from the seven different stations you had to have in your home, <laughs> multiple drink stations, by the way, and making sure that you have chargers under all the plates, and all these different things, my wife came home devastated. She said, I can't be hospitable. <laughs> we had a 500-square-foot apartment at the time. And uh, she was like, I can't, I, maybe two stations? That's about all I can do. But the point is to be hospitable with what you have. Peter adds the words without grumbling, without complaint. Generous hospitality that is out of love is without complaint. And that's the mark of a strange person, a strange Christian. Because it is strange to share what you have. Just ask any two-year-old. Has the gospel made you a hospitable person? Has it done that? And you have to be careful with this one, especially in the South, right? Because hospitality, though it may be waning a bit, is built into our culture. It's a part of our culture. I remember a good friend of mine from California. He's both a lawyer and a pastor. And he told me the first time he visited the South, and he couldn't help but be very suspicious. Everyone was too nice. He said it felt like there was a big con going on, and he was just waiting for the other foot to drop. <laughs> and we do. We have to be careful because cultural hospitality is not the same as Christian hospitality. Cultural hospitality does it because it's expected. It's what you have to do, which often includes grumbling and complaining behind their back while putting on a smile and saying, my pleasure. <laughs> it's a little more than legalism. Christian hospitality is genuine. It's done out of love. It's not done with complaint or grumbling. And we need gospel-motivated hospitality, hospitality that is born out of a love toward God, a love toward others, out of the gospel message that tells us that the end is near. Hospitality is one specific example of how we love one another. Again, the Bible really does understand human nature. For many of us, we struggle with this, with hospitality towards persons, especially those that have hurt us, or towards strangers, I mean, opening up your home does make you vulnerable. Things might get broken. Your house might end up messy. Well, Peter continues in verse 10, and he broadens the expression of love and the actions that accompany love by saying, each one should use whatever gift they have received to serve others. He goes from the very specific to the very general or the all-encompassing. Whatever gift... Use it in serving others. The light of the gospel, when it shines into your minds and clears things up, it reminds us that God has been so good to us in so many ways. And there's so many gifts that he has given to us, to the body. 
read 1 Corinthians, and you start to see all the different gifts that are manifested in the body. And so Peter says, take those gifts, whatever they are, and serve others. You are not an individualistic Christian. You do not do church. You do not do fellowship by yourself on the beach. So use whatever talents, abilities, or skills you have to serve others. How are you doing in this area? Are you being selfish with your gifts? Or are you motivated to serve others because the end is near and judgment is coming? Are you looking to serve others to save them from hell? Verse 11 adds to this, speaking. Some take this to be a continuation of some sort of formal gift, such as teaching or preaching. And Well, I think it could certainly encompass that. I think it's much more general. It can include those things, but it includes all speaking. Everyone's been given a tongue. All of us can speak. Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. We're all to be using our words and our speaking to edify, to encourage. Just do a study of the New Testament and look at all of the instructions and commands about how we speak toward one another, how we encourage one another, how we're to exhort one another, how we're to preach the gospel. We're all to be speaking and using that to serve. Peter continues broadly in verse 11, saying that the one who serves is to do it by the strength which God supplies. In everything we do, we are to be God-like. We are to be imitators of God. We are to glorify God by serving others. Serving others is not dependent upon some unique spiritual gift. You do not have to have the spiritual gift of service to serve others. Every single believer Every single Christian is to be serving. Paul writes in Galatians 5.13, For you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And I realize as we have been speaking, really this whole time, we've been speaking to those who have experienced the transforming power of the gospel. I also realize that in a room of this size, there are probably some who have not experienced that transforming power of the gospel. Serving is hard. It's hard to not grumble and complain. In fact, you really can't do it. You realize that everything you do frustrates you. You end up frustrated with it. No matter how hard you try, you can't love others. No matter how hard you try, you can't really be hospitable. No matter how hard you try, you end up maybe more angry, more frustrated than where you began. There's a reason for that. It's because you're not doing it in the strength that God supplies. It's because you can't do it in the strength that God supplies if you have not been transformed by this same message of the gospel. And the message of the gospel is very simple. It's to recognize that you are a sinner. And by the way, you're not alone. You're surrounded by sinners. Every one of us is a sinner. That's not what makes you unique. The distinction is, have you recognized your sin? Have you cried out for God's mercy, recognizing that the end is near, judgment is coming, and you need the mercy of God? If you have not done that, I pray that you would this morning, that you would call out to him, because there's not one he turns away. Now, for those who are Christians, who have experienced, who have been touched by the message of the gospel, 
who have experienced the transforming power of the gospel. As we head into this new year, as a, as a church body, we want to do a better job of working on loving and serving one another and serving those around us more. In fact, in the weeks ahead, we're going to be presenting practical ways we as a church body will together practice loving and serving each other. And the first one that I'm going to invite you to participate in in the month of January is looking for ways and opportunities to invite others into your home. I want you to just find two persons or families who you do not know very well in the church body. We're going to start in the church body. That's a good place to start. They don't bite as hard. Invite them into your home, if possible, but spend time together. Make it a concentrated effort to spend time with at least one or two persons or families that you have not spent much time with before. Yeah, that's the challenge, is be hospitable to one another. Put it into practice. If possible, have them over for lunch or dinner or dessert. Spend time with them. Try to find some time to pray together. For some of you, it will come quite naturally. For others, it will come with a great deal of effort, but encourage one another. Don't mock, don't give someone a hard time for it being difficult, encourage them. As we work on practicing hospitality, on loving one another. The challenges get harder from here, by the way. Well, it's time to conclude. How clear-minded is your living? Heading into the new year, it's important to have the gospel clarify and focus our confused minds. To remember that the end is near. We've seen some of the effects this will have. But the most important effect is that when the gospel clarifies your mind and clarifies our minds, we will understand, we will display it in our lives and we will proclaim both with our lives and our words the great goodness of God. The end of our passage goes like this. So that in all things, there it is again, that very complex Greek term, all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder this morning to help sweep out the cobwebs, to clear our muddled thinking, to bring into sharp focus and sharp relief that the end is near. The end of all things is near. And so we need to be focusing on the important things. Help us to do that as we head into this new year. Help us to not become distracted, to become discouraged or dissuaded by the things of this world. Father, help us to be diligent and disciplined people. Help us to practice loving one another, being hospitable toward one another, and serving one another. That you would be glorified that you would be proclaimed, that others would look on and say, I want to be a part of that love. And that they would learn that this love only comes about through the strength that you supply because you loved us. While we were still sinners, you loved us. And you sent your son to those who hated